I just feel like it's a different ball game at the moment and I just want people to be able to make the choice that is best for them based on actual science because I don't mind what decision that you make so long as you feel that you are keeping yourself as safe as you can and those around you as safe as possible. Hello and welcome to Soul Deep Conversations with Livy. This is where we talk about the stuff that matters. Life, love, spirituality, relationships, parenting and more. I'm Olivia, your host. I'm a singer-songwriter for children and adults. I'm a podcast and video producer and social media creator. If you love juicy conversations, you've come to the right place. Today I speak with Anna Cusack. Anna is an author, doula, podcaster and speaker. Her area of interest is pregnancy and motherhood. She has an interest in how history, society and culture shapes our experience of motherhood in ways we're often not consciously aware of. In recent times, she has moved into the area of educating people about all things COVID-related. She has been using her knowledge of how to understand and interpret clinical research to provide the public with scientific evidence they need to make informed choices around COVID vaccinations and other decisions. She's providing answers to the questions and fears people have. This is a move she has described as career suicide, as people often get very angry when discussing anything about COVID. This is a great conversation. I'm sure you'll get a lot out of it. So, welcome. Thank you for joining me. I have Anna Cusack here today that I'm very excited and privileged to be speaking with. I um, am lucky enough to work with Anna. Anna reached out to me to support her on her podcast and a few other odds and ends. And yeah, it's great to be behind the scenes and work with such an amazing, intelligent, passionate, empathetic, caring person. So, but I will let you introduce yourself in terms of who you are and what you do. So take it away. Well, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for the work that you do with me and for me as well. So as Libby said, I am Anna Anna Cusack. I am a doula, an author, a podcaster to a speaker and a writer in terms of the online social media spaces too. And my area of interest is around pregnancy, birth, parenthood, parenting, and especially through the lens of mothering and motherhood itself because motherhood and, and fatherhood play out differently in in Australian society and broader society in general. So sometimes words like parenting and parenthood don't always cut it to encapsulate the experience of mothers. So what is it that motivated you to want to go into that area in the first place? Well, my background is in health. I was a health professional and exercise physiologist for a number of years. And when I had my own baby, I had done a lot of work sort of physically but mentally as well and emotionally in the lead up to that process. I have seen kind of women's health from the side of the practitioner before I needed specific women's health services myself and kind of got a glimpse into what my body was and wasn't going to be able to not handle but perhaps what I might and might not be up for and how that was different to the expectations of society so after I had my baby so I not only looked at kind of 
preparing a nice room for my baby, which, you know, we didn't really do because she wasn't going to sleep in it anyway. But, you know, we got all the baby stuff. I did a lot of preparation around birth. I was preparing for a home birth, which I hadn't. It was beautiful. But I also looked towards the postpartum period as well and what that might, what I might need and how I could ask for those things ahead of time because I really kind of struggle when the pressure is on to be able to take that step back and think what do I need right now and then take the next step of being able to ask for it. So I tried to identify those things and ask for them ahead of time. I did a broad range of reading around how postpartum care might look in different traditional cultures and parts of the world and how that might be played out in our society because I'd just seen enough patients that were coming to me a few years down the track or even when their children were primary school age and teenagers and just still never having really caught up from being so depleted by being completely undersupported when their children were babies. So that's kind of my journey with postpartum work sort of started before I was even postpartum myself and then I had it's been a really interesting time to be a new parent. So my, my daughter is two and a half. And in that time, we've had all of the things of the, that really bad summer of bushfires, the global climate strikes, Black Lives Matter took off again, and then the whole journey of the pandemic. So it's been a pretty full on little ride. And yeah, so all these sort of, different experiences also with the eye that I cast over the world, which is I've always been really interested in how social systems work and perhaps more interested in things like like history and policy and things like that than other people of my age or my generation. And so all of these things are kind of intersecting in this big what seems like a big mess at the moment but because I have the understanding of how the different layers that sort of brought to this point I can sort of it feels like it makes sense to me so my role is often to get just to explain certain things in ways that people can understand it whether that is about um you know, at the moment I've been working around helping a lot of people understand how coronavirus works and vaccines, but often it's about how to source a women's health physio because they've never had any idea before of how a referral pathway works or why is breastfeeding so hard when we're told that it should be such a natural, easy thing to do and sort of troubleshooting all of these different areas, but without going let here's all the information I know on a plate it's like what do you want help with right now and can I explain things in a way that means that you're finding the answers for yourself to either create the feeling of safety that you need within yourself or to support to be able to surround yourself with the support you need so I don't know if that exactly answered your question but I think I went around in a big circle and we're back to here it was really interesting anyway. <laughs> um, 
Actually, it's interesting that when you're in a situation, you know, most of us are just experiencing it. And it's interesting that you've got the broader perspective, like what we just think is our lives and why aren't I coping? And you can you can see the history and the broader picture and our our culture and I think it's actually helped me extract myself from a lot of the guilt and and feelings of shame or even resentment to the other people around me because I know that it's a pattern that's repeated a lot and it's not my fault it's not just their fault it's that we're all in this cultural situation of under supporting mothers yeah and when you're in it you can't see it especially if you haven't started studied it or had that lens to um, be viewing the world yeah and I think I was it's interesting as well so my husband's a little bit older than I am and of his friends we're one of the very last to have our children whereas of my friends we're, we're one of the first and so I can see how me having watched their experience can inform what things I do and don't take seriously or, or what I do and don't care about so much. So there was a mum of, I don't know, four or five kids at the time and she told she said something to me like, whenever you're getting worked up about something, ask if you'd care about this situation if it was your fourth baby. So like if I go somewhere and I don't have enough changes of clothes and the kid just has to stay dirty, <laughs> I don't care because if that was my fourth, fifth, sixth child, I'd know, oh, well, that's fine. They're okay. Instead of going like, oh, it's my first baby. I'm such a bad mom. Like mom should have this all figured out. Why don't I have a spare set in the car? I'm just like, oh, well, she'll survive. Skin's waterproof. Yeah. We can move on. And so I get, I can get out of these loops that are socially patterned guilt quicker from, from being in that experience and hopefully seeing me being a little more relaxed or less stringent about certain things or more go with the flow, more responsive emotionally to my child, but less caught up in what other adults might think about that, then hopefully that sort of filters down towards my younger family members and younger friends who are only just starting to sort of talk about pregnancy and have their babies now. Yeah, that kind of that shows the importance of actually being open and sharing these things. When I had my first, I really didn't have anyone in the family who'd had a baby. I didn't have any form of reference and I had postnatal depression. It was and I was mm. following everything by the book, as you do, because you don't know anything else. So yeah, burn those books, hey, burn those books. <laughs> when you've got no other point of reference, it's a starting point maybe. But, yeah, to realise that you can, like you say in your book, Mummy, You're Not Broken, that that you at some point realised to, to instead of um, worrying about what was in the books, to actually go to your daughter <laughs> as your point of reference and see what it is she wanted and respond. Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> I think that's something else that I probably skipped in my earlier story as well is that there is 
familial history of postnatal depression and that I'd had episodes of depressive episodes where sort of medication had been offered to me at different times by doctors and I was really concerned that 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 was going to strike me again in the postnatal period and being someone who's worked in both rehabilitation and preventative health for a long time it's a lot easier to prevent something than it is to cure it so although there's a lot of hormonal things happening and it can't be wholly prevented in every case a lot of the postnatal depression and postnatal depletion that I think we see in our in our society of of parents of all genders is about lack of awareness support and and resourcing in general so yeah my path for me was to try and do everything i could to prevent me sliding into a mental health hole knowing that it still might happen anyway and i would want those people around me to know about it to to help me and then yeah that's that's how I see my work continuing now is to make people realize that they're not alone, but also that there are ways to avoid it and to, to move on, like not move on to, there's just a better way for us to do it socially. And unless I think there is this idea of things being it's just how it is. It's just the way that it's always been. But yeah, through my interests and studies, I know it's not just the way that it's always been. And we can see that even within Australia, we can see how people from different cultural backgrounds do all sorts of things differently. They do weddings differently. They do food differently. Like why are we, why do we just assume that motherhood and, and raising children is the same across every culture? Or that there's one right way to do things because there's not. Hmm. We just don't know any different. I might just share in case it helps someone out there that when I had postnatal depression, I guess I felt a lot of shame because I'd got pregnant with I through IVF, so it was very deliberate. So, mm. so who was I to have postnatal depression? But I would say the one thing that helped me the most out of everything is actually admitting it, and I admitted it pretty quickly, and it was thanks to those the maternal health care nurses actually having some questionnaire at one point and asking you the questions and I think I might have been borderline in the answers but then I went away and went oh no yes I definitely yes I put my hand up I recognize I'm in a hole here and it felt mm. like it felt like a crisis because it was being caused by a permanent change in my life that I felt yeah I, I hated being a mother at that point and I felt shame and you know but I found that every time I said it to a trusted person I healed a bit and I was over it in about three months which felt like a long time but now when I talk to other people I realize that was pretty quick so and I that sort of connects to what Brene Brown says about shame it can't shame can't survive with empathy so I know that if I had told somebody and they said all the things I thought about myself if they had said you should be so lucky. You had IVF. You've got a perfect child. They actually sleep at night. There's no problem with them. You know, if they said all the things I was thinking, I would have gone on a downward spiral and would have been really bad. So it's very important if you're around someone that's got, that's feeling this way that, you know, to support and understand and it's common and there's a light at the end of the tunnel and things do get better. 
So I think it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much for sharing that story of your experience. And I think there is a lot of underrepresentation of mental health amongst people who have had a long pathway with fertility or particularly infertility or loss. And there's this thought that when you've gone through all that heartache and the baby heals the baby and that it's done now and that's not the case. You know, it's the time when you're still carrying all the the previous babies and hopes for babies in your heart. You you still may be grieving that your conception or birth or whatever it is wasn't just like the easy natural thing that was painted to you for your whole life and then you've got potentially troubles with feeding you're definitely going to be short on sleep you'll still be bleeding and uterus contracting and all of these painful things and it's not very long until you're left alone to deal with those things and perhaps that's different I think for some people through the pandemic, that's been actually a bit better that some people have been able to have partners or a support person stay home. But for some people, that's been a lot worse because they're essential workers and then anybody who may have been visiting hasn't been. So it's a it's a vulnerable time anyway. And I think it's particularly important to be checking in with with new parents now, but also know that it's not just a new parent thing. You know, we talk about postnatal depression being in the first 12 months of the child's life. That's kind of the postnatal period in the medical model. But statistically, postnatal depression, it peaks when the child, when your oldest child's about four years old. Like it's a slow burner thing that we need to be aware of, that it's not just, it's not just the baby turns one and you're finished. So once you postpartum once you you're there for the rest of your life uh so more I, more recently you've been talking about covid and vaccines and all of that i know when it when i occasionally think oh bugger it i'm going to post something about covid and then on my socials and then i have this thought in my mind i wonder i wonder who's unfollowing me <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> so and you've talked about this is what career suicide looks like. <laughs> if you could just talk about what brought you to wanting to speak about that on your socials, because what you've been doing is going through the research and explaining it for people so that they have the understanding and so they can make informed choices. But yeah. giving it such a heated topic, how has that been? What was that decision-making oh, process like? It is like? a heated and, topic. Yeah. It's a heated topic where I don't think it should be. Mm. Yeah. So I have a, a postgraduate qualification in a health science related field. This means that I'm someone who knows how to read research papers and interpret them properly and synthesize or sort of put together and analyze the data and information and present them in a way that makes sense. And that's something that I'm used to doing across health conditions of all kinds through my professional life. You know, I have 
put together courses and workshops on everything from diabetes to cardiac rehabilitation programs to all sorts of different things community health programs for children and families like this is something that I'm familiar with but now I find myself in a space of a sort of birth worker community or a birth keeper and a postpartum and doula space that's really a lot of people come to that from their own personal experience and from a more like well-being kind of background and by well-being I don't mean like like my previous work might have been considered clinical, but well-being is more about things that you do when you are well to keep yourself well. So things like meditation and yoga and I don't know what else, Reiki, anything that seems like a sort of a natural health modality. And there comes to be this clashing point where we were getting messages early on in the rollout of the vaccine in Australia where there wasn't enough supply of doses for the government to say like yep yeah, everyone just go out and get it so instead of saying that they sort of said like oh there's no rush make your own choice do your own research because if everyone went and got it then they'd have no doses left and they would have been embarrassed by that so then Delta outbreak comes hugely easily transmitted, but also more dangerous strain of coronavirus. And we were already like, you know, we were in lockdown for a last time with a long time last year with the original strain, right? Like it was already a, a dicey, dangerous condition and it continues to be, but Delta is more so dangerous. So now the vaccine supply is there, but the messaging takes a while to catch up and the trust has been decreased in the government by all of these levels of longer and longer and longer lockdown so then i am in my space here in the middle of the social media bit where there's mums my science people from my past life history and a whole lot of natural birth keepers that are like you know heavily into not heavily into but you know like we're talking people who will be happy to free birth without a midwife in the forest for example like we've got all ends of the spectrum happening on my social media page here and what i was seeing was a whole lot of people who are not able to synthesize research being told by government doctor whoever to go and do your own research and make up your mind but we have really low health literacy in australia and really low academic research paper kind of literacy too and even if you have a university education level background that doesn't mean you know how to read health papers like it's a really small percentage of people that are actually able to go and read those research papers and make up their own mind right the messaging from the government then goes to it's safe just go and get it, trust us just go 
but there's nothing in between to reassure people. So particularly in the area of pregnancy, birth and lactation, there's a real hesitation around vaccination because people don't want to harm their babies and that's fair enough. It's absolutely fair enough. But we also know that late pregnancy is a really key time in terms of heightened risk for severe disease from COVID at the same time that it's the that these people are the most hesitant to get vaccination. So in America, for example, in some of the southern states like around Alabama, the vaccination rate for pregnant women in their second and third trimesters is only around 14%. And this is at a time where people are 2.1 times more likely to die of coronavirus than people who were not pregnant of their own age. Hmm. It's really massively associated with greater rates of needing to be hospitalized, needed to be on in ICU on life support and a ventilator, preterm birth. And yes, we don't have like, you know, babies take a while to bake into birth and we don't have direct data on what the outcomes will be for a baby whose mother is vaccinated in their first trimester yet but we do know that there's no increased risk of pregnancy loss or complication during the pregnancy itself and people need to be told these things in a way that makes sense to them so that i'm just sort of been working through in my inbox all these messages of like oh my naturopath or me it'll change my dna my i don't know tapping therapist told me that it was going to get into my baby's brain like just these things it's like who is coming up with this so I decided that I would be one of the people, I'm certainly not the only one, but one of the people who is just going through and analysing some of that research at the moment and presenting it in ways that people can understand. I have done three half-hour research reviews, one each on pregnancy, lactation and fertility and menstrual changes because that's something that is being really, uh, again, people who particularly women and people with wombs have been particularly hesitant about being vaccinated because they are concerned about potential effects on their future fertility. And a lot of people are not aware that the endometrial cells, the lining of the uterus is part of our immune system. And yes, there have been some reports of menstrual changes for one or two cycles after the vaccine which is something that's also happened with the cervical cancer vaccine before and it's something that happens also if you get COVID but potentially to a more severe degree so people are in this sort of sea of misinformation and I'm just trying to make sense of it for them and also getting some people who are working on the ground to come and speak either on my podcast or on my page for mum's as well so i'm speaking with a nurse from the emergency department of royal melbourne hospital about what she's seeing i'm talking with an immunization nurse about what's actually in the like what the components are of the vaccine and what 
else they're found in, what else, where else we come into contact with them in our daily life, if it's safe, if what the process is for developing a vaccine, and also hopefully with a doctor as well to just answer any other questions that they might have about how things play out with COVID and coronavirus. So yeah, um, the birthy kind of community is a real like tinderbox when it comes to vaccine. It's sort of like where the people who often very anti-health system want to protect women from the dangers of medicalization reside. And I totally get that. I just feel like it's a different it's a different ball game at the moment and I just want people to be able to make the choice that is best for them based on actual science because I don't mind what decision that you make so long as you feel that you are keeping yourself as safe as you can and those around you as safe as possible so yeah that's that's it and I have had a lot of unfollows and a fair bit of hate so but you know I don't have hundreds of thousands of people to start hating on me. So <laughs> it Better hasn't been too bad. But yeah, I think there was in the last month, I've probably made the most important content that I've ever made, perhaps maybe besides my book, but in terms of timely scientific work, this has been the biggest chunk of work that I've done in the space of a month. And yeah, there's probably about not quite 10%, but maybe 8% of my audience unfollowed. So yeah, it's a sizable <laughs> chunk when you're like, oh, is this going to hurt my business? But also if I, so I'm a postpartum doula and a parenting support person remotely as well. And I'm thinking, I, I'm not, a, I'm not somebody that can be a chameleon and, and just adapt to the situation like I'm me whatever the situation is mm -hmm. and if someone wants to work with me what they see is what they get so I can't really mm. you know if they don't like what I'm talking about now and how I present this information now then we're probably not going to click so that's fine they can go <laughs> you'll attract your ideal people so on the fertility thing that reminds me wasn't there isn't there a rumour I've heard that like that was some sort of deliberate thing to make people infertile? Would that even be, have you heard that? And would that even be possible? Like if that was, if that was some sort of aim. Yeah, so I think like but, a half the world's population has been vaccinated by now. So that would come through in the research, wouldn't it? But then yeah. maybe some, just trying to think of the, you know, devil's advocate, would people claim that certain people are being silenced or you know the research that we're seeing is it yeah is it everything? There's, um, there's a lot of rumors about that sort of stuff so the first thing to know is that people who are pregnant or lactating are generally not enrolled in clinical trials for any kind of medication so that's with the idea of keeping people safe but in this case it's really frustrating because pregnant people in particular, one of the most vulnerable groups. So generally, generally a drug goes through a whole series of a whole series of steps where the researchers come up with something and then they test it on animals, they test it on, they get approval to test it on humans, they get approval to do the next stage, blah, blah. There's a lot of sort of waiting between uh, 
between one stage of the research process and the next. And there might only be sort of like one or two people enrolled in the study per week even. And it takes a long time to get to a number of people that they've tested a drug on to be able to analyze the stats to see what effect that it came up with. But with coronavirus, there were literally like tens of thousands of healthcare workers that were just like, yeah, like when it get when it got through the early stages, they were like, yep, I believe in it, sign me up now. I'm in a really high exposure job. So they got all of their huge numbers of participants in like a short of time to actually have the vaccine in the real world. And then we were able to follow that data to see what would work. So in that process, there were people who actually became pregnant accidentally in the trials of all of the vaccines that are available in Australia. So they'd they were either early in pregnancy or they, or it was just before they conceived and then they still got pregnant. So we know from very early on that it's still very possible to get pregnant just after you've had your vaccination. And then the same kind of thing happened. The main studies in hospital staff around places like the US and UK and Israel and Singapore are the other places where there's data published in, like research published in English that I've been able to read a lot of. And yeah, it's still very possible. Pregnancy is still happening just at the same general rate as usual. And the, all the rates of loss in the first trimester and all of those things are just keeping on just the same as they do whether people are vaccinated or not. So the, the rumour that it was that the drugs were going to make someone infertile came from there was a man who used to work at I believe it was at Pfizer and he had a falling out with the company and became very bitter about I don't know what about but he went on a bit of a what has been used as a scare campaign afterwards whether it was meaning to be or not but yeah he I think he put out a tweet that it was going to make people infertile and then everybody freaked out and there's no data there was no data before it there was no data after it but yeah it's something that the that you know there are people who are against every vaccine and it just is like now is their time to shine so they've picked up on this one too you asked about people being silenced as well and I feel like the idea of the idea of silencing is an interesting one so the first one that they come up with they being like specific anti-vaccine campaigners campaigners and I'm not saying every person who doesn't want to get a vaccine is is anti-vaccine I'm just saying that there are people who are who have taken this as their sort of hill to die on at the moment, that all, vac all coronavirus vaccines are terrible things. So what they'll say is that why, why can't our health professionals report side effects? Why is it up to the consumer? Why, why are we gagging our health professionals? And when you go onto the Therapeutic Goods Association website, that's the TGA is the 
place that approves drugs for this company and also monitors their safety. So when you go onto that website, it actually explains that there are four avenues for reporting side effects for COVID vaccines or adverse reactions or serious events that happen after them of any kind. So there are four ways. The first one is that it suggests that you talk with your health professional and ask for them to report it on your behalf. So then it's kind of left up to, and there are people saying, oh, but the pe when people in hospital wouldn't report it for us, they said that we had to do it, blah, blah. Maybe they're really busy, maybe it's against their policy so they have five doctors spending their time reporting that side effect instead of treating the other patients or maybe there's another reason that, I, that I'm not privy to, I don't know. But that doesn't mean that the side effect doesn't get reported. So the first way is that help, thing to know is that health professionals can report any kind of side effect. Then there are three other ways. The person can report an event to the TGA directly. They can report it to their health and territory state health departments, sorry, state and territory health departments, or they can report it to what's called the NPS Medicine Wise Line, and that's a national sort of hotline service as well. So, yeah, the idea that you'll see all the time if you're watching on social media about people being silenced, but I don't really know that that's true. And then there's silencing around, the ideas of silencing around, but my doctors said that all these other things would be useful. So stuff like there was speeches made in parliament by politicians from like the One Nation Party about ivermectin, which is a like anti-parasitic livestock drug. It's not been shown to be useful in the research. That's why we're not promoting being promoted to use it because it's found scientifically to not be useful. If it was useful, they'd be trying to make it here in Australia themselves and shipping it all over the world to make a ton of money. Yeah, you know, 99.9% .9 of the world's scientists believe in climate change. I don't really see a need to give the 0.1% that don't a platform to talk about it. I feel like we should just be taking action on climate change and pretty much the same thing happens with the pandemic. If 99.9% .9 of the world's doctors and scientists believe that COVID is real and that vaccines work, we should probably be talking about that information instead of giving a platform for the 0.1% of people that don't to put fear in the minds of, of the people who are statistically much more likely to get really sick and die if they get it and they're unvaccinated. Well, there's people that say that people die all the time and people die from the flu all the time. There are people who will quote that that all this focus has been given to coronavirus, but only 1% die and people die from the flu every year and we don't talk about that and, and yeah, that it's just, uh, you know, you have to get tested to find out you have it. So while it must be, so how dangerous can it be? And all these sort of arguments, like, yeah, I know. So it's about a 50, 50 split. If you get coronavirus, it's a 50, 50 split, whether you get symptoms or not, basically. The trouble is that a high proportion of the people who do get symptoms are going to get sick enough that they need hospital care. So, so from the UK data, it's, I think it's 5.7% of people who get coronavirus, Delta strain, are going to end up needing hospital care or presenting to the emergency department. So 
think about how many hundred people you know think about how much we know our hospitals are already full with normal people with normal things going on and multiply that out across how many people you would know that would all need hospital care right there's a percentage of those that are all going to need icu care as well so yes people do die from the flu the stats in Australia are usually, I think it's usually around 14 or 1500 people a year, something like that. Last year, there was pretty much zero because the same precautions that we use against coronavirus work against transmitting the flu, keeping your distance, washing your hand, wearing masks. They're both respiratory transmitted conditions. So where am I up to? <laughs> <laughs> so why is it so much worse than the flu is it or is it just you know control yeah so it's the flu only the flu kills people by defenses being overwhelmed essentially so people who die from the flu are generally already quite frail and sick it's generally people who live in nursing homes or very elderly people in the community or someone who's already got a whole host of other things like they might be undergoing chemotherapy or whatever it is like it's generally people who are already quite frail or quite sick trouble with coronavirus is that it makes you sick by two different pathways so one of them is that same being overwhelmed kind of immune response where your immune system is overwhelmed the second is kind of that your immune system works too well to try and fight off this new invader so your body becomes really inflamed trying to fight it off and a whole lot of what's called pro-inflammatory cytokines are released into your body and this they call it a cytokine storm and it's it kind of happens where all of the organs are basically they're you basically go into organ failure you're starting to shut down and so this is why some seemingly healthy people just get out of nowhere, or like get sick out of nowhere, sort of between sort of day five and 10, where they might feel like they're starting to get a bit better. And then suddenly they like fall in a big heat and your body's doing a freak out because your immune system is trying to mount such a big attack that you're overwhelmed by your body almost attacking itself. So yeah, yeah. 5.7% of people who get the flu are not going to need to go to hospital. 5.7% of people who get Delta are probably going to need to go to hospital. And we know that people who are exposed to more virus are going to, are more likely to get sicker. So that's people who live in perhaps multi-generational households or, or overcrowded spaces, but also the people who are working in our hospitals with those patients. So the more exposure that they have at their workplace the more likely they are for them to get sick too and if we need hospital care for that many people we're going to need a whole lot of workers that are available and they're not going to be available if they're sick and they're probably already tired from working through this these conditions and being in lockdown themselves for the last 18 months so this is where vaccination becomes so important because it's really reducing your likelihood of getting infected in the first place. It's really reducing your likelihood of getting sick enough to need hospital 
healthcare. Those statistics, again, particularly on pregnancy, so 6.5% of unvaccinated people in their third trimester, I believe it was, in Alabama were needing to go to hospital, 6.5%, whereas if they were vaccinated, it was 1.5%. Perhaps they were, maybe don't quote me on this one, maybe that was the statistics of how many people contracted coronavirus. I only read this one yesterday, so I'm not as familiar with this one. But yeah, it was like a fifth of the people either trans or either got coronavirus or needed to go to hospital for it if they'd been vaccinated. And then if you do go to hospital and you've been vaccinated, generally your care is for a shorter period of time, it's not as invasive, and you don't end up in ICU. So in the last week of September, on the 28th of September at Royal Melbourne Hospital, there were 16 patients in ICU, 13% of them were unvaccinated and, oh, sorry, 13 of those 16 people were unvaccinated and three of the people had had one dose. And at the same point in time, half of the Victorian population were fully vaccinated and they didn't contribute a single case. So it's working. We just need to do it and we need to stay safe between our doses and we need to stay safe for a period of time after our second dose as well because we can go like yes fully vaccinated particularly where i am in new south wales when you're fully vaccinated as of next week you will be able to do a few more things than what we've been able to do up until this point but the full effect of the protection of your dose doesn't kick in until sort of eight to 14 days after your second dose so we do still need to exercise caution in that early period. And yeah, then those extra extra little steps of wearing masks, washing hands, keeping distance where possible, just sort of being breaks in the chain, you know, like I talk about there's a lot of anxiety around for new families who have had their babies recently about going from their little cocoon to everybody wanting to meet the baby all at once and all the germs that they might bring with them. And you know, they might need, they might be more comfortable if you offer to isolate yourself for a few days before you go over, even if you are fully vaccinated. Or if you work as an aged care nurse, they might want you to return a negative test before you come over. Like, we have to keep having conversations to keep the most vulnerable people in our community safe. Babies seem to be generally okay because their immune system is immature. They don't have that kind of like freak out body freakout response so infants seem to be okay particularly breastfed infants if their parents have been vaccinated they're getting if their mother or breastfeeding parent has been vaccinated then they're getting some antibodies through there so they're generally okay but there is there's still like this age group of five to 12 year olds that are unvaccinated that that can't get vaccinated yet because there's not an approved vaccine in australia for that age group and yeah in Tennessee, that it's sort of 1.7% of kids of that age group that get COVID need hospital care. And it's still a lot. Like if you think of your kids' primary school of, you know, if you think of primary school of 500 kids, that's still, what, eight kids that are going to end up in hospital? Like mm. it's, we still need to be working together to keep ourselves, ourselves safe. Is there any news on the horizon? we can get. All those kids protected. Is there any news on For the horizon children. about that? Because I know I'm not. Yeah, like my own son is seven and 
throwing in battle as much yeah. as I hate remote learning, the idea of yeah. sending it back when the cases are still just climbing and there's no vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. So there has been studies conducted in children now, clinical trials conducted in children by Pfizer, potentially by Moderna as well. I think it's Pfizer have submitted their results from their trials to their Food and Drug Administration, FDA, which is kind of like like their equivalent of the Therapeutic Association in Australia, their regulator. So they've submitted their data to the US um, regulators to, for approval. And then that drug will be available in America for five to 12 year olds. And then generally Australia get a turn after that. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So there's still a bit There of is, wait. but it won't be until next year. Oh, no. But there's trials of, the trials are showing this as effective in children as it is in adults. Mm. And what they're doing is giving a smaller dose to children. So the adult dose, uh, is I believe it's 50 units of the drug for Pfizer. 30 or 50 units of is this is in each dose for the adults, whereas for the children it's 10 units each dose. And they're also looking at under fives with a three unit dose, still with two two vaccination doses at each of those levels and just seeing, yeah, where the sweet sweet spot is of the minimum they can give them to to get the best effect. So there's another reason, I mean, yeah, I guess if people get vaccinated, they're protecting those who can't. I know other people will see it differently and have huge reservations about giving their kids these things. But anyway. Yeah, exactly. And I think think we kind of need, we, I haven't started talking about that yet because I feel like we need to get enough adults okay with having the vaccine themselves. Mm. and just not not forcing anybody to have it like making them feel informed and safe enough to do that if that's what they are comfortable doing and then we can see then we can see how well it's working and when you can see how well it's working and know how small the risk is of the drug in comparison to the disease then it can be like that can be a reason in itself. Like I, I reckon in a few years time, it's just going to be part of the normal immunization sort of pattern for children that people don't really think twice about, but I understand why, why there's reservations now. Hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And also I think it's it's another reason to sort of, it reminds us as well, why giving human milk to human babies is important mm-hmm. and particularly for those who are immune compromised or you know we know ba- we all know babies who have needed to who need help for a heart condition when they're first born or someone whose child has ended up in hospital for various reasons and we need to be protecting them by not spreading it to them, but we also need to be supporting the policies that mean that they can get maternal antibodies through the breast milk if 
if that's possible in any way, whether that's from their own parent or even, you know, if I go really taboo from donor milk or something like that. So, yeah. Is that taboo? I, I nearly considered that. So I have low, very low milk supply and I still breastfeed occasionally. It's like comfort. Mm. I really don't, I don't do anything to increase milk supply. So I probably have a few drops. I don't know, but I'm just hoping the little bit she gets um, is doing her yeah. 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 So Kelly mum in the US says 50 mils of, of breast milk. She mentioned that number of like immune cells and stuff that gets through in there. And it was a ridiculous number in the billions, trillions, I don't know, mm. something massive. So yeah, every little bit is, is helpful. And uh, yeah, I've considered the same actually for some friends who have bottle fed babies at the moment. Like, would it be weird if I just contacted them and said like, do you want me to pump a little bit so you can just have a few drops of antibody I'll milk? I'll do it. Someone offered it to me and they were on the other side of Melbourne. It wasn't going to be. Actually, a couple of mm. people did. Someone was in Sydney when I was having trouble getting the milk supply happening. And I tell you what, it's it's the most beautiful gift. It, just to be offered, even if it's not practical to actually take it up, I'd still offer. It's Yeah, cool. All right, we've been chatting for a while, so I should probably wind it up. Is there any parting message that you want to share? Or at least tell how otherwise how people can work with you? Um, a parting message. I suppose <laughs> that... that our fears are not facts mm -hmm. sometimes we need to remove ourselves from the from everybody else's emotion to be able to make our own choices by just sitting with some information and and thinking about that whether that's about your birth or about your feeding choices or about that your mother-in-law is telling you that you have to put your baby in a cot or else you're the devil or about or about vaccination like sometimes you just need to step back and go like well what's what's actually going to be the best for me in this situation and sometimes that is switching off all your socials and all the news for a few days and just being in all of that uncomfortable place until you find your own answer because the answer is not the answer to pretty much everything is not in your facebook feed <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i think your facebook feed is pretty good as in oh, your thank page. You. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, yeah. Well, you can work with me. You just ask that bit as well. <laughs> so if you would like to hear more about anything that I've talked about today, you can find me on the Motherhood Made Magic podcast. You can also get my book on Amazon and Kindle and, and from me directly at www.annacusack.com.au. And the book is Mummy, You're Not Broken, Unmasking the Unspoken Emotions of Modern Motherhood. And you can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram as well. So my handle is at Anna Cusack postpartum. And I'm sure you'll include all those links for us, Liv. Yes, I definitely will. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you need support with your own podcast production, social media or repurposing, head over to livymusicmedia.com to find out how I can help. The music used in this podcast is a song called Messenger, written and sung by me. 
I'd love you to follow my music on the music streaming platforms. You can find my grown-up music by searching Olivia D'Souza on your favourite music streaming app. And you can find my kids' music by searching Livy, L-I-V-V-I. Or you can use the links in the show notes. Come and continue the conversation on my social media platforms under Livy Music Media on Facebook and Instagram. I look forward to having another soul-deep conversation with you next time. 